In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever had someone, maybe your parents, your grandparents, aunts, uncles, teacher? Maybe Dave has said this when he was an administrator. I know I've said it to a kid or two along the way, not always charitably. You're acting like a child. I want to ask Dave if he said that. I'll, I'll admit that when I was a school administrator, you say that to him? <laughs> Did you ever have a kid ever retort, but I am a child. How, am I, how else am I supposed to act? I've had that one come back on me. But when you're six and your parents or your teacher or somebody said that to you, how did that make you feel? How about when you're 16 or when you're in your 20s? Hold that thought for a minute. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Now we go back in time this morning for the last several months, we've been reading the prophets, and now we're headed all the way back to Moses' time, the end of his ministry. Now, traditionally, we would say that seven or 800 years between the time of Moses and when Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah and Jonah have their ministry. This is toward the end of Moses' life. In the next chapter, he's going to appoint his successor, Joshua, and the chapter after that, they're going to bury him. And here he sums up what God wants, the very founding of the covenant. Now the common English Bible stays close to the Hebrew wording. It says this, life in what's good versus death in what's wrong. And that seems like a really straightforward choice, right? Who doesn't choose life in what's good? Who wants death in what's wrong? Who doesn't want to be under God's protection? The whole book of Deuteronomy can be seen as a restating in re-explaining what we call the Law of Moses in all of its nuances to the children of God right before they enter the Promised Land. And Jesus loves quoting Deuteronomy. His responses to the devil and his temptation in the wilderness are all from Deuteronomy. The first part of the Great Commandment is from here. Chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now the other half of that verse is the other half of the great commandment I just want to take a moment and say is from Leviticus, a book we normally don't like to read. And it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Why do they need to choose life? Moses gives them two similar but slightly different responses about how they choose it. First, he says, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances. And then he says, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him. Now, the loving the Lord your God, that's a phrase we're very familiar with, right? We've already talked about how it's earlier in Deuteronomy. And here at St. Paul's, at least one service every weekend, we read it aloud. At 7.30, we say the great commandment, like clockwork. But notice here, love is not presented as a passive thing. It's not like when I was a teenager daydreaming about a crush that I could never quite work up the nerve to say anything to. No, it's something that requires work, like any true relationship. And as we're part of that relationship, we walk with God. We continue on his path. 
we do our best to walk and live the way that he wants us to live. But in the end, let's all be honest. We're humans living in a broken world. We do not always choose to go on the right forks when we get to those forks in the road. We do not always choose to follow his commandments. And in those moments, that's when we have to cling to God. For we know that his mercy is great. Our psalm this morning starts, Happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Our psalm this morning comes from the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a love letter to God's law, written as an acrostic. The 176 verses are divided into 22 stanzas. Each one, each of those stanzas, is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each one of those verses starts with that letter from the alphabet. This morning we're in Aleph, the very first letter. The psalmist writes, Who never does any wrong, but always walks in his ways. Now notice he's talking about an ideal state here. It's one that our psalmist can't even live up to. Oh, that my ways were made so direct that I might keep your statutes. He's not writing about himself. He's not saying, I'm already perfect, so rejoice in me. He's writing that that's the way he wants to live. But unfortunately, he's only human. He doesn't always live up to his desires. He says, I'll keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. He's crying out in this passage, God, I'm clinging to you. I'm going to try to live as you want me to live. Please don't forsake me in my moment of weakness. Our gospel this morning says this. You've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, or whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sisters, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the fires of hell. This morning we have one of those really hard sayings of Jesus. And I think it's harder because it's divorced from its larger sermon, the larger teaching that we hear about. Let me read the last verse from our gospel reading from last week. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been talking about God's grace. Jesus has just gotten done saying, The meek will inherit the earth. And then he tells them, if you're trying to get in on your own righteousness, you have to be more than the scribes and the Pharisees. And now Jesus is expounding on what it means to have the kind of righteousness that could earn your own way into heaven. He's saying that it has to extend beyond what we actually do and be in our hearts as well. That if we do the right thing, but we have hate in our heart, we're still bound up in this world system. Every one of us, I think, if we're driving, have had that moment or we look behind us, and what do we see? A police car. And what's the natural inclination there? I mean, even if I'm doing the speed limit, I let my foot off the gas, right? Go a little bit slower, go a little bit under. Only someone who wants to get caught, or someone lacking any common sense, decides that's the perfect time to speed up. But I tell you, there are days I really do want to speed up, because I want to just be on my way and be there even faster. Jesus here tells them that if they have something against someone else, before they go to God, go to that person, ask the other person's forgiveness, to reconcile and ask forgiveness from God. Jesus is not saying the previous teachings were wrong. He's saying that they didn't go far enough in addressing the underlying issues of the heart. As I was studying this week, I read something from Professor Amy Oden that explains the passage well. It says, she says this, Jesus reframes 
the reframing of righteousness exposes the easy truces we make in this life. We can pat ourselves on the back for not committing murder. While we ruin the reputation of a co-worker through our words, we even call it stabbing someone in the back. The notion that we must reconcile with anyone who has something against us before we can give gifts to God should stop us in our tracks. There is no easy private relationship to God in these words. Resentment, alienation, estrangement from others prevent me from even giving my gifts to God. Jesus is saying that our relationship with God is impacted by our relationship with others. That's why the prophets have been telling his people that they can't ask for forgiveness if they're still out there cheating people, if they're still out there doing wrong to their, to their workers and their neighbors. And Jesus here applies this principles even to our relationship with our spouses and our relationship with the wider world. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Our compliance with the rules, our doing what we're asked or what we feel like we should do has to be done in love. It has to be done without malice and duplicity. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, Paul here is dealing with the issues within the church in Corinth. The church, which Paul opened his letters thanking God for, saying, I'm thankful for the time I was able to spend directly with you. The church, which Paul said was blessed in speech and given all the gifts that were needed from the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness. Paul says that they're acting like spiritual children. Paul says that when he was there, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were infants, not ready yet for solid food. I mean, that makes sense, right? When you have a baby, the baby has to have milk. You don't start sticking steak in a baby's mouth. What happens? They choke. But a five-year-old child needs more sustenance, right? More than just what milk can give them. And here, even though he's been away for a few years, Paul's saying, listen, you're still not ready. You're still not mature. Think about how that must have felt to them. Paul's saying, stop acting like spiritual children. Why are they not ready? Because they're quarreling. There are people putting themselves over others, thinking they're elite. They're taking their spiritual heroes and creating cliques around them. They're doing exactly what they would have done in the world to gain position and prominence. It's us versus them. Divide and conquer. And Paul says because they're acting that way, they're still in the flesh. Because they want to use worldly tactics to advance in the kingdom of God. Paul asks them, who am I? Who is Apollos? They're nothing but servants, he says, but workmen. We've planted, we've watered. But in the end, all the growth is due to God. Paul says that the workers will get their reward from God not from them, not from the Corinthians. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. And notice that Paul says this doesn't kick them out of the kingdom of heaven or out of the family of God, that they're no longer part of the body of Christ, only that they need to grow up, only that they need to grow into the maturity they should have in Christ. All of us here are working together. And I want to mix my metaphors even more than Paul does in these passages who are called to grow, to grow more together, to follow the path that we're being led down. We're called to follow his ways, to follow in that life of blessing. Now Lent starts soon, a time when we're called to fast and to examine our hearts and lives even more than normal. 
But before then, take some time as we're praying this evening, that when we pray for forgiveness of our sins, before that, stop and examine your own heart and ask, do I need to seek forgiveness from someone? Do I need to go and make my right my own actions? Bitterness and unforgiveness has a way of eating into our happiness, into our souls, into our minds. I pray today that we're all will examine our hearts if we need to. And if we need to, go and seek forgiveness. Amen. <clears throat>